Hello, and welcome to the Cane and Rinse podcast. This is volume six, issue 272, and today we are talking about Tales of Vesperia. You, yes you, can play along with volume six. Our entire schedule up to and including issue 300 can be found on the Cane and Rinse website, but if you are looking to uh, get a head start because there are some uh, pretty hefty titles coming up, uh, you might want to start looking at some of these titles, the next five of which will be Robotron 2084. The Witcher, that's the first Witcher. The other titles in that series are going to be coming up uh, later on in this volume. Beautiful Joe, R-Type, and Life is Strange. Looking forward to that one. Uh, you can go ahead and head over to canemrinse.com, and in fact, we encourage that you do so for some articles, features, reviews, and of course, links to our forum, Facebook page, and our YouTube channel. If you are really into what we do, uh, and I, I know that you are, uh, there are a number of ways in which you can support us. We do have a Patreon, and that is at patreon.com slash If you feel that uh, everything that we do, all of the content that we produce is uh, worth something uh, that you can give back to us a little bit, we're asking you for maybe a dollar a month. If you would like to donate more, we love that. We love everything that we receive. Everything is very gratefully received, and that'll help us keep on doing what we do in in fact, we have upped our target. If by mid-November of 2017, we can hit our target, which is currently $3,000 per month, we will be doubling the number of Cane and Rinse podcasts that we produce. It's currently 50. That would go to 100 podcasts per year. So $1 per month, 100 podcasts. That's a lot. So uh, if you can, please head over to patreon.com slash Cane and Rinse uh, and get on board. We would be very happy if you did that. If you would like to uh, sport some Cane and Rinse pride, uh, you can go over to our shop as well. That also supports the podcast. You can find a, a t-shirt, a bag, uh, a lot of things with our lovely logos on them. And that is shop.spreadshirt.co.uk slash Cane and Rinse. They will deliver to the United States. I can uh, personally attest to that. I have a couple of uh, t-shirts. I have a Cane and Rinse t-shirt and a Sound of Play t-shirt. So uh, if you would like that, no matter where you are, you can go ahead and uh, pick something up. Please review, rate, and subscribe to both of our podcasts, this podcast as well as our video game music podcast, Sound of Play, uh, coming up on episode 100, that one is, and uh, that should be a good one. Uh, you can get those on iTunes, Pocket Cast, Stitcher Radio, TuneIn, or wherever else you get podcasts. So, joining me, Leah Haydu, in my very first hosting gig on Cane of Rinse for issue 272 are Carl Moon. Hey, guys. And Mikhail Croder. I wish I could bounce. <laughs> All right. So a little bit about Tales of Vesperia as we uh, get started here. This tale, no pun intended, uh, was developed by Namco Tales Studio, unsurprisingly, and published by Namco Bandai Games. Uh, there is a little bit of uh, confusion, I guess you could call it, um, some mix-ups uh, regarding uh, some of the people who developed and uh, produced and directed and wrote this game. Um, Wikipedia has one set of entries. Um, there are other sets of entries in other different places, such as Moby Games and, in fact, the manual for the game itself. Uh, so we're going with currently the... Uh, 
the names that are written in the actual game manual, uh, which matches up with what's on Moby Games. So uh, directors are listed as Kyoshi Nagai and Eiji Kikushi. Uh, writers, Koki Matsumoto and possibly Takaki Okuda. Um, we're not sure about that one again. It's, it's a little confusing, uh, as many Japanese games are. Uh, composers of Motoi Sakuraba and Hibiki Aoyama. Uh, localized by 8-4, who uh, many people may recognize if you're into the uh, JRPG scene as a, a pretty big localizer. They are also uh, pretty closely connected with Giant Bomb, who hosts their 8-4 Play podcast, which I also listen to. Uh, very cool if you are into uh, localization in Japanese games. It's, uh, it's some interesting stuff there. Uh, the game was originally released in August of 2008 in Japan and North America. A little bit later in, uh, in the... Uh, in uh, Europe of June of 2009. These were both uh, Xbox 360 releases. Now it's a little bit unusual because this is the first of the Tales series to be released. And in fact, as of now, the only of the Tales series to be released on a Microsoft platform. Uh, And at the beginning, it was exclusively on Microsoft platforms. Did get a port later in September of 2009 in Japan only for the PS3. That did actually include some extra content. Uh, There was an extra character, uh, actually two extra playable characters, one of whom appears in the game but is only playable very briefly, one of whom is completely new to the PS3 version, uh, as well as some extra costumes, a bit of extra content. I believe there were some extra side missions. But again, it's only in Japan, sadly, so it never did uh, come to the West at all. So, uh... Let's talk a little bit about the Tales series in general. Now, I'm not going to go super into depth here because there's a lot of it to go through. Um, there are a number of uh, Tales games that are out in the West alone, as well as some that were uh, actually exclusive to uh, Asia, Japan, Um It is the Tales of series in Japan, and it did not start with Vesperia, not at all. Many people may have heard of Tales of Symphonia, which is one of the bigger titles uh, in the beginning. Uh, And again, as you'll hear in my my little list here, uh, even that was not the beginning, but uh, they're actually... Prior to Tales of Vesperia, the main series had nine other titles. Uh, It's just about in the middle, not quite. Uh, 16 is the number that we look at for main series titles. But again, lots of spinoff games, lots of uh, side titles, and there are also uh, a number of other media outlets that this has appeared in. There have been uh, several animes released, there has been manga, there has been audio drama, Tons of, uh, of places that you can find Tales-related tales, if you will, uh, even if you're not in Japan. But uh, I just want to run down a quick list of the main series titles in order of release so you can kind of get a, uh, an idea of how big and how long this series has spanned. Uh, the first listed title, Tales of Fantasia, came to the Super Famicom in 1995. Tales of Destiny was PS1 in 1997. Tales of Eternia is kind of an interesting one. It was released in Japan. Japan as Tales of Eternia in 2000 and then came to North America a year later, but was called Tales of Destiny 2. Then the actual Tales of Destiny 2 as the fourth title in the series was again Asia only and that one was PS2 in 2001. Tales of Symphonia came to the PS2 only in Asia and to the GameCube everywhere else in 2003. 
Tales of Rebirth, an Asia-exclusive title, was in PS2, 2004. Tales of Legendia and Tales of the Abyss were both PS2 in 2005. Tales of Innocence, an Asia-exclusive title, was DS in 2007. Our current title, Tales of Vesperia, came to the 360 in 2008, and as I mentioned earlier, got a port to the PS3 in 2009. Then we have Tales of Hearts, which was a DS title in 2008, later came as Tales of Hearts R to the PS Vita. Uh, I don't have a year on that, but I did play it. It's pretty decent. Tales of Graces came to the Wii and the PS3 in 2009. Tales of Zillia came to the PS3 in 2011 and Zillia 2 in 2012. Tales of Zestiria is the first of the uh, titles to actually get a next generation or I suppose current generation now release in 2015 on the PS4. And finally, Tales of Berseria in 2016, also for the PS4. So regarding sales, Japan sales have been around 200,000 units, a little bit more than that. Uh, it is the second best-selling 360 game of all time behind another JRPG, Star Ocean The Last Hope, and ahead of a third JRPG, Blue Dragon. I also heard something uh, quite amusing, or I read something quite amusing when I was reading up on the game as well, that caused the uh, fairly limited stock of uh, Japanese Xbox 360s to be sold out everywhere. Tales of uh, Vesperia, that is. <laughs> yes, absolutely. So you can kind of see uh, what kind of impact this series has over there, because I'm, I'm sure we've all heard that... Uh, Microsoft consoles are not exactly popular, uh, never really have been. So you see these JRPGs that are kind of leading the pack. And if they can sell out uh, a fairly limited stock, as you say, Mikhail, then um, yeah, that's that's kind of something. Mm -hmm. um, sales a little bit higher in the North America and the UK. That fiscal year alone, it sold 410,000 units. Uh, and it got pretty decent reviews. Uh, not top of the pack, but uh, currently it holds a 79 on Metacritic with 67 reviews and an 8.2 user score with 281 user ratings. Uh, an 81% on game rankings, an 8 out of 10 from Eurogamer, and a 35 out of 40, so that's pretty good, from Famitsu. But none of this really, though, answers the question of what is the Tales series and what is specifically Tales of Vesperia. So to me, I think that the series can really be compared to Final Fantasy structurally. They have these giant, lush JRPG worlds. Uh, they can be played separately because they aren't directly connected, but you see some things that kind of keep coming back. Um, in Final Fantasy, you see summons, you see crystals, there's always somebody named Sid. Uh, for Tales, the battle systems are frequently the same, and uh, you definitely are going to see some anime here. This one uh, has a similar... Uh, cell shading look to some other titles that came out, out came out around the same time, such as Eternal Sonata. And uh, you, of course, usually have a very sheltered young princess who you must teach the ways of the world to. So uh, with all of that under our belts, uh, let's go ahead and talk a little bit about, uh, I'd like to know about uh, our histories with the whole Tale series, uh, if there is any, and uh, with Vesperia specifically, uh, the Tale series, as we've heard, is uh, pretty expansive both before and after. So um, have you played any of the other ones? Do you know anything about any of the other ones? Uh, are you interested in the other ones? And uh, what's uh, what's the deal with uh, Vesperia specifically? Yeah, so uh, if you'll allow me to waffle for a bit... Uh... There's do. only three of us on this uh, on this episode, <laughs> right? So we can afford a little bit of waffle. Actually, not much of a JRPG guy. I always found to, found uh, the genre quite odd, uh, being that I my experience prior to them was with uh, you know like with some 
obscure old dungeon crawlers and uh, those final fighting fantasy novels that uh, Carl Ooh. might be uh, familiar with, which is all like you know the 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 author of the novel is the is the dungeon yeah. master and you you got your dice with you and your your pen and your paper. It's it's a single player pen and paper RPG basically. That sounds uh, cool. I've never played one of those, but I think I would like to. Yeah, it's like and it's it's part choose your own adventure book and part uh, part RPG battles. And um, also, one of my first proper CRPGs was a game called Swords and Serpents on the NES. Uh, me and my friends and brother and kids from the neighborhood, we used to play that with the four-score adapter with four players. So everybody would roll the dice and would uh, build build the character. And you're actually dungeon crawling with uh, with four four people at the same time. So I, the, the one thing that always struck me as odd about uh, Japanese RPG is that they never really seem to be much about role playing at all. I mean the 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 whole story is preset, the characters are preset. There's no, you know, you you don't create a character. And also it's it's so strange that you're play single-handedly playing a party of uh role playing a party of characters, like almost like you're schizophrenic or uh, have a multiple personality dis- disorder. The the other thing is that I always feel like the core components of Japanese RPG, like the turn-based battles are I find find usually more compelling in actual turn-based strategy guides or games like Fire Emblem. And the exploration bits like the discovery and the world parts, uh I always found a lot more uh, compelling in uh, action adventure games like Zelda. So, but having said all that, uh, with all my reservations, I was always cautiously interested in the Tales of games due, due to their uh, single-plane 2D fighting game-inspired combat systems and my love for fighting games. Ever since I read about uh, Tales of Symphonia for the GameCube, I was kind of interested in the series. And uh, much later, uh, a friend of mine gifted me a copy of uh, Tales of Vesperia for the Xbox 360 without a manual. Uh, so it was uh, basically uh, sitting on um, on my shelves uh, uh, unplayed. Uh, but my interesting was uh, interest in it apart from the combat system was further fueled since uh, Yuri, Estelle, and Flynn, the three of the main uh, characters of the game, are featured quite prominently in Project Cross Zone for the 3DS, which I very much enjoy. Oh. And uh, when Leah uh, last year suggested uh, to be covering Tales of Vesperia for uh, for this season of uh, of Kenny Rins. I was on board right away because it uh, sounded like a good incentive to finally play through uh, through the game and uh, complete my very first uh, Japanese RPG for the very uh, for the first time. Excellent. Yeah, I I, I would say that uh, this is. I wouldn't exactly say that it's atypical for an RPG, but mm. when you think about particularly some of the types of JRPGs that came before it. I, I suppose it was around this time that it, they were starting to change a bit into not strictly you have four people standing on one side of the screen and yeah. you hit a button and one of them steps forward and you all take very orderly turns. Yeah. This is not that. And uh, and I think that's that's something that drew a lot of people in. It's certainly one of the things that uh, made made uh, Vesperia and the Tales series in general stand out for yeah, me. Yeah, exactly. And I, I also want to point out that it, isn't, it wasn't the first JRPG that I uh, played, but it was the first one that I played through all the way uh, and uh, in a very substantial and uh, invested manner. Um, yeah, I, uh, another very atypical JRPG was uh, The Last Story, which I mm-hmm. almost nearly completed. And it, it's a very short game. But I was completely underleveled for the for the final boss, so uh, ah. I would have to uh, to redo uh, replay that game all from the beginning again. 
I think I think that threw a lot of people. Mm. Uh, Carl, how about you? Uh, you played it closer to release or just coming to it now? Um, I got Tales of Vesperia when it first came out. Uh, it was something that I was excited for. The Xbox 360 was going through this heavy push of Japanese role-playing games, uh, which was obviously their big push on the Japanese market. And it came for sort of like some really interesting games with like some Star Ocean and Eternal Sonata, Blue Dragon, etc. And this was the one that visually seemed to stand out the most. Now, I was aware of the Tales of series. I wasn't aware it was that big. There were certain ones I'd heard of. I'd heard of Tales of Destiny. I'd heard of Tales of Symphonia, which was probably the the big named one prior to this one. Um, and I'd also heard of Tales of the Abyss, but I wasn't actually aware that it was a Tales of game um, for a long time, which seems silly, but I guess <laughs> Tales of is quite a, a loose-termed title for a game, and you don't sure. necessarily bundle them with just being in a tale series. Mm. But when Vesperia came out, I felt like it was something that I really needed to have. And I got stuck into it and I got sidetracked, uh, as was the way I had way too many games. And I would sort of flip between them. And that's something you can't really do with a JRPG because there's such time sinks. Now, I was actually, I, I was actually a fan of the genre coming in. So it, it was going to be my... Uh, Xbox 360 JRPG from from launch. I'd been looking forward to playing one, um, and it was the one that I was going to dedicate my time to. And it, obviously, that never came to fruition, uh, which sort of was a shame. And I ended up selling it. Uh, I got offered a decent amount of money for it, and then it went out of print, and it became yep. incredibly difficult to get a hold of with copies going for at least twice the price if you were fortunate, and. Thankfully, years later, it suddenly came back into print and became very affordable. Uh, so I actually did make a profit on it, even though I never made the biggest profit I could have. Um, <laughs> and then I, I later ended up buying Tales of Exilia uh, on the uh, PlayStation 3 uh, and, funnily enough, sold that without ever playing it because the person that purchased it from me really wanted that game, and I was always a fan of if someone really wants something, then... I'll sell them. And it was the nice boxed copy with the, the, the cardboard sleeve and stuff. So uh, I would rather it get played than just sit in a wardrobe or a, the attic or whatever for so long. So I, I was sort of no stranger to the history of the Tills series. I wasn't as aware that it was as sprawling as it was, but Vesperia was definitely the first one that I sunk a lot of time into twice. Um, <laughs> but uh, it's it's a genre I am fond of, and it was it's always one that I intend to play more, but... I guess when you consider how much extra time you have to put into JRPGs than you do other genres um, and you put everything else aside, and I'm a very social gamer playing online sessions with friends a lot, it makes it quite tricky. But uh, my my history with RPGs goes way back to the Amiga with the likes of Eye of the Beholder and playing those kinds of role-playing dungeon-crawling games. And as Mikhail said, you had these uh, dice-rolling books that were fun because you could play those on your own and I used to play point and click games and imagine I was role playing as that character and sort of that that was my history as a youth so I always came in and then I guess as with many people the big breakthrough would have been Final Fantasy 7 on the PlayStation mm-hmm. um that sort of really brought JRPG as something truly substantial to the uh, to the west and from there it was Final Fantasy 8 Final Fantasy 9 and then I picked ones up here and then Tales of Asperia was the sort of the jumping point for the Tales of series for me. I am probably, in fact, I would 
have to say definitely the uh, the most into JRPGs on the Kanan Rinse squad in total. Uh, it's it's always kind of been my go-to genre. I've played a lot of them. Some of them excellent, and some of them really not so excellent. Mm-hmm. Um, but I am. Up until fairly recently, I was the sort of gamer who would not put something down once they had started it until they were done with it. So even if I wasn't enjoying a game very much, I would push through just because I wanted to see the end. And I, I felt that I needed to complete uh, something like that once once it was in my, uh, in my system, whichever system that was. That has kind of stopped in recent years because I have found that I have uh, less time and um, and I really want to spend that time playing things that I am 100% into. So um, I, I still do uh, give things more of a chance, I think, than, than a lot of other people do. But I, uh, I will, if I am really not enjoying something, I will stop, whereas I would not have when I was uh, younger. That said, uh, Tales of Vesperia was not a game that I had to force myself through. I had played uh, a one Tales game previous to uh, to this, and that was Tales of Symphonia when it got its uh, GameCube release. I uh, loved Tales of Symphonia. In fact, I'd say it was probably in my top three GameCube, maybe three to five GameCube games. Um, you know, Wind Waker, of course, being top of the list, but uh, there there were a lot of good titles on the GameCube, but that one was way up there for me. I have off and on considered purchasing a special edition um, Symphonia GameCube. It's turquoise and it's Japan only, and it would be completely frivolous, but it's super pretty, and nice. I don't currently have a GameCube, so I've, I've considered it. Um, keep an eye on that on eBay sometimes, but um, it it was it was very high on my list of GameCube games that I I really liked, and up until that point, most of the JRPGs that I had played had been more along the lines of what you would think of as the turn-based, like I was saying before, you know, a line of people on one side attacking the monsters on the other side, or it was something like uh, a Baldur's Gate for the PC, where um, it was not exactly that kind of turn-based, but it was um, sort of a and d based uh, dice-rolling dice type yeah. of... Yes, exactly. Um, so this was something different when I came to it in Symphonia. And the fact that you could act basically whenever you wanted to within some limitations there are cooldowns and there are um there are things that you can't do all of the time but you can run around the field essentially wherever you want to positioning is extremely important you can attack people from behind without having to rely on luck it's uh it's different from uh, many things that came before it in in my purview at least and um i think that a lot of people we're getting this for the first time on the 360, given that the 360 had such a huge install base around this time. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I did play it uh, when I uh, very first, when it very first came out, I would have been working at GameStop at the time. So um, I want to say that I probably got it right on release uh, and uh, played through it uh, somewhat voraciously played a lot of the uh, side missions, if not all of them. Uh, this time around, maybe not as many side missions, uh, but still, I, I have greatly enjoyed this title both times that I've played it. Uh, so I, um, I, I have gotten quite a number of hours out of uh, out of Tales games 
and since then have uh, also played some of the later games in the series and have several more sort of sitting on my shelf. I mentioned that I had played the uh, Tales of Hearts port uh, that came to the Vita. I also played the Wii version of Tales of Graces, which was actually called Tales of Graces F. I played Tales of Zillia. I have not played any of the uh, latest three, Zillia 2, Zesteria, and Berseria, but I own all three of them. So just as soon as I get through Persona and Nier and Zelda and all of those other things that I have to play. They're on my list. Um, but as we've mentioned, they do require a pretty big time sink. And when I play one of these games, I like to devote myself to it. I like to get really stuck in and not jump back and forth between other things. Mm. So uh, it will take up a lot of my gaming time uh, if I pick up one of these games. And that's a good thing in general. Um, some of them I've liked more than others, but um, Vesperia is uh, is high on that list as well. So um, we've talked a little bit about the Tale series in general, uh, but the story, I spent some time on the show notes trying to type out a synopsis of the story that one, didn't take six pages, and two, didn't make me sound like a completely crazy person. So um, I kind of nailed it, I think. But um, what I will say in a more general sense is that uh, Tales of Vesperia and most of the Tales games that I have played, at least, I can't obviously speak for all of them, do tend more toward a standard JRPG trope in that they are very much save the princess, save the world. There is a great big ultimate evil type of game. Uh, is that is that fair to say? For this one, at least. <laughs> it's definitely the case yeah. for this one. <laughs> yeah. But um, in a grand and surprising twist, and uh, this is probably the part where we need to... Ah, uh, uh, yes, issue a spoiler end, warning. Uh, issue a spoiler warning. <laughs> in a grand and surprising twist, you actually don't fight the ultimate evil directly in the game. So there's not, not a, a huge, monstrous uh, final boss. But you fight the guy that wants to destroy the ultimate evil, only goes about it uh, in his way, which doesn't yeah. really sit well with our main cast of characters. Exactly. So, uh, yes, I, that, that is a good point. Um, you, you do get that kind of twist, which is... Uh, it's it's not unheard of in JRPGs for that to be kind of a thing, but uh, but this one does. I, I feel like it does that part pretty well. Uh, yeah. I think we'll, uh, we'll we'll probably go into that a bit more uh, when we talk about specific characters. Um, but um, would uh, would either of you like to take a whack at uh, at a quick story synopsis? Quick air quotes. Quick. <laughs> if what like if we just say that it's final fantasy 7 will that be quick enough <laughs> well it could be uh would you like to elaborate um <laughs> basically uh, the whole world of tales of Vesperia revolves around the use of blastia a magical source um that that powers stuff which isn't too dissimilar to sort of mako reactors mm -hmm. uh if you're into final fantasy 7 and they are the sort of the, the, the crystals that that source everything and as the story unfolds you realize that there's actually a darker history to the use of blastia and that people are making these uh sort of mutated versions that have essentially caused several serious great wars uh certainly one great war uh, which impacted the the story and as you start meeting characters from the different backgrounds um you start to piece together exactly what had happened um because it the thing is it's the game's never overly clear about the duration of time that's passed mm -hmm. uh most of the events sound like they only happened 10 years ago 
but they obviously happened a long time sooner, and that kind of stuff gets a little bit confusing. But it all revolves around Blastia. A certain old man veteran in the in the group uh, who's only uh, around thirty five years of age uh, was, <laughs> yes. uh, was well, a great war yeah, veteran. I mean, yeah, it, it's one of these standard JRPG things where a lot of the characters are a lot younger than you think they are. Yeah. I mean, mm-hmm. I think well, Captain Carol's twelve. I think <laughs> I think maybe the central theme of Tales of Vesperia is uh, kind of uh, environmental in uh, in nature, and I haven't uh, my my knowledge of uh, Final Fantasy is very limited, and uh, you know yeah. the things you reference, but it's uh, this idea of like you know humankind has. Uh, a certain way of life supported by a certain type of uh, of energy uh, only it gets discovered later on that this uh, the use of this type of energy is very de- detrimental to the wor- world and will lead to its ruin in the end so yeah I guess yeah. That, that's kind of the ce- central theme of the thing of, of uh, yeah, humanity having to come to terms with basically devising a new way of life in order to, for the, the planet or for their world to survive. It's kind of funny that uh, not knowing much about uh, Final Fantasy VII, you just kind of described the plot of Final Fantasy VII. Right. Well. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, it, <laughs> there you go. it very it very much is. Um, you can draw a lot of parallels uh, between uh, air, uh, the A E R type of air, yeah. Uh, yeah. which is essentially the the magic that makes these crystals, these blastia, work. Uh, it's just kind of this raw magic that floats around in the air and the A I R air. Uh, but um, some people can control it just by itself, and that's something that you find out very early on about one of the main characters, uh, Estelle. She is uh, one of the children of the full moon, is what they are called, and it is um, kind of an, an advanced, um, in this time they are royalty, uh, the people who can control the air without the use of Blastia, and she does not necessarily need it. Uh, there are a very, very small number of people who are like her, so she is one of the, the kind of special chosen ones. Mm. And um, most of the people who are using these Blastia do need this air, but if you pull too much of it, and this is something that um, actually they touch on in the prequel anime uh, as well, is that if you draw too much of this, that's where the problems start to go. And people are starting to pull too much of this. It's starting to mutate um, beasts that are around. It's starting to fail in some places. So uh, depending on this, much like with Mako and the life stream in uh, Final Fantasy VII, is, is really starting to, uh, to cause some issues there and that's that's where uh, our story kind of gets uh gets a little a little iffy in, yeah. in places i think what makes the story so tricky to surmise in its full entirety is that it starts out all innocuous and just you know a group of friends uh setting out on some travels and having some pretty light-hearted adventures and it's uh there are definitely clearly defined parts to the stories of where it takes twists and turns and uh you know, they, they could almost be isolated uh, stories in themselves patched together uh, in, in one mm-hmm. in one larger plot. I mean, a lot happens uh, story-related in Tales of Vesperia, and JRPGs are usually in-depth with a lot of communication between characters and stories and backstories, and that, that's obviously one of the reasons why people love them so much. Mm. But Tales of Vesperia tends to go above and beyond most in that, 
there are so many cutscenes and so many scenes of just your characters talking with each other and learning um, the pasts of each one that at times it, it can result in a few minutes of actual playtime per hour if you want to sort of listen to all the conversations that are happening. Yeah. Sure. Um, and then it can become a bit overwhelming so to try and communicate a whole plot yeah. um, of something like this. It sounds like we're maybe being a bit disrespectful just calling it Final Fantasy VII. There are undoubted similarities Final Fantasy 7 is an incredible influence not just to JRPGs but many other games so yes. it's obvious that a JRPG would lean on it this mm-hmm. leans on it very heavily uh, with its origins and it, it, not even just its origins but several of its character designs I think it's also you know what you're describing about the, the characters and their back, uh, background stories I think that's also kind of the strength and what breathes this particular story uh, to life because yeah. it's a, it's, it's fairly cliche fantasy stuff, but it feels more like a, a fantasy tale or story presented as a character driven story rather than a full events, uh, events driven story. And mm-hmm. since even the characters, and I think we'll get into that bit after this, uh, the characters are also kind of cliched in their own right, but they're very well char- characterized uh, cliches, I feel, which is what uh, made the feel made the game uh, the game story connect with me. It's a sort of trait of the tales of games um, that story wise, plot wise, they're maybe not the strongest in the JRPG games, but what it lacks in plot, it does tend to make up for in characters, and it's usually the characters that drive the tales games, and that that's sort of their that's their thing that they have. Is that I mean. I wouldn't say it's persona character strong, but it's it's um, what is yeah exactly. But for what people tend to like about Final Fantasy VII, I would say that this certainly goes above with how it delivers the stories and the histories of the characters, and they're not all likable as with all games, but um, they're definitely very well fleshed out. Yeah, I uh, one of the reviews that I read uh, in preparing the show notes, uh, and I wish that I had written down which one it was, but said something very similar uh, to what you're both alluding to here in that the the actual story of Tales of Vesperia is not exactly boilerplate, but is not the most innovative thing that you've ever heard. It's there to be the stage on which you get to know these characters and on which you get to see how they interact and how they get to know each other. Uh, And I, I... I think that's probably what sticks a lot. You can tell by some of the structure of how you you see these characters interacting. And what I'm specifically thinking about here is the skits that you uh, frequently get. Mm-hmm. There are dozens <laughs> and dozens guess, yeah. of these skits. So what I'm talking about uh, for for those who have maybe not played, and this this is also something that is common in, in Tales games. Um, this is not the first one that I've seen it in. Um, I, I think that's another pretty good staple to uh, to mention is that very frequently you will depending on who is in your party at the time you will see a prompt at the bottom of the screen yeah and it will say press this button uh i think it's the back button isn't it or exactly the, yeah. yeah yeah uh on the on the 360 controller it is the back button to uh to see this skit and if you press the button uh if you do not press the button then it stays there for a very long time so i i actually really liked these so i was seeking them out but uh yeah. 
you, you don't necessarily have to. No, I think. But if you press, uh, if you press this button, you get a uh, a skit, and what that is is it's just portraits, sort of anime styled portraits uh, that are sort of animated, not animated in the means that uh, that the rest of the game or the cutscenes or anything like that are animated. Mm-hmm. But um, y- you would, if you have watched a lot of anime or have played any anime styled games, then you'll recognize kind of what this is. It's the portrait that appears next to somebody when they're speaking, uh, yeah. basically. And um, you'll get kind of a little side story. And it's maybe a minute or so long, but there are so many of them. And they are just these little side interactions that you don't have to see, but you would be missing out on so much if you didn't. Because these are kind of the little, this is what makes these characters, and this is a completely loaded term, but I'm going to say it anyway, makes them human. Mm -hmm. Which I say is loaded because one of your party members is a dog. So, (laughs) I I mean... And he doesn't even speak. No, but he's the best. I love Rapide. Yeah, <laughs> he is. So and yeah, those, those the sort of um, skits are incredibly charming, mm-hmm. and there are times when they can sort of roll back to back to back. Yes, uh, sort of three in a row, and it be- can become a bit distracting and frustrating. But they are so key to delivering the story, and it, it. I think it's also important to note that they are all entirely voiced. Yes. So there are several cutscenes in the game that are voiced. The majority uh, of interactions with characters aren't voiced. They're just uh, readable. But every skit is fully voiced. And they yes. are quite charming. Yeah. I mean, except for the fact that Yuri looks a little bit like a frog, which is kind of... <laughs> well, sort of once you see it, you can't unsee. Okay. Um, but you do get a sense of movement because every so often it'll sort of move... Yeah. The blocks around, and I remember one early one is when some you get char- some character. Yeah, you get Estelise, and she desperately wants to be Rapide's friend, and Rapide doesn't seem to take to Estelise at all. And there, are, there's one scene where she's chasing him around, and the two squares are moving around the screen, and Yuri's just sort of muttering under his breath that this is just ridiculous. Like <laughs> we've got more important things to do with our time. Yeah. And the, these are the things that made me really like some of these characters, yeah. and yeah. and really love moments in the story, and it's. In a way, it's great that they're completely optional because um, you can't fast-forward the speech in these. You can either watch it all or skip. And if, when you complete the game, you can actually buy all the skits and watch them through mm-hmm. uh, so you can actually get a better hand of the story yeah. because a lot of the story is there- delivered through subquests, which sort of is an important part of the game, again, that becomes optional. But... Uh, so much story is delivered through these skits that really, if you're not watching them, you're kind of robbing yourself of the experience because it it's not the same level of game or story or character-driven um, interest if you don't watch these. I think it's uh, the reason why I didn't want to skip them and I didn't feel like, oh, all the story is getting in the way of my gameplay uh, <laughs> is because it adds to the flow and the dynamic of the game. I mean, if you're not watching this uh these skits, uh, you're just wandering from one battle into another. So it's I, I yeah. felt it's a great break from just nonstop uh, battling monsters. The skits have been some of my favorite things in the uh, in the Tales games. I, I really enjoy that they give you that opportunity to learn more about your characters that way and don't try to force it into big, long cutscenes that, you know, don't give you as much as these small kind of intimate looks at what they're doing when yeah. they're on the road or when they're at a campsite or whatever, you know, what have you. So before we uh, go into uh, the main cast of characters, uh, I think, also, one other way to describe the or summarize the plot of the game is just an increasingly tightly knit group of uh, friends discovering the world and their place in it. 
So if yes. you look at it from the from the character yeah. perspective rather than the the big uh, historical uh, event angle, I I think that is a, a great way to look at it actually, uh, and to that we. Uh, We've talked a lot about uh, the characters and their interactions, but we haven't said a whole lot about the specific characters. Uh, so I'd like to kick this off with that post from the forum, canarinscom uh, forum. And uh, this is from Pale Avenger, who says, I tried to get into Tales of Vesperia, but I don't think I'll ever finish it. I put in about 20 hours and found some aspects of the game really enjoyable. The combat system is pretty fun. I like that there is a bit of strategy to the overworld battles, and some of the art is beautiful. I also really enjoyed Yuri's character. I felt that the writing did a great job of portraying him as sad, kind-hearted, and caring without making him preachy or dull. Unfortunately, there were some persistent annoyances, and I was less enamored of the other characters. The naive princess was pure cliché, and I don't really enjoy the JRPG staple of impulsive, childish little kid characters who can outfight all the adults and monsters in the world. I couldn't ignore this part of the game either, because the characters kept talking about it, and Rita kept having temper tantrums. There are things to love here, but I just don't feel like spending another 30-plus hours listening to some of these party members, especially Rita. Mm -hmm. So that kind of goes against some of the things that we were saying, and I wanted to put that in there because it is uh, it is an interesting yeah. counterpoint. Um, so were there any party members uh, that either of you particularly liked, didn't like? Uh, do you agree with any of, uh, of what uh, Pale Avenger here is saying? Um, I think I liked all of them almost in their, their own way. The character that took, took me the longest to warm up to was Raven, actually. I was trying to figure out, is he supposed to be some kind of comedy mm -hmm. character or something? Because I didn't find his jokes all too, uh, all too funny most of the time. Rita, I took a little bit of uh, warming up to, since uh, she is kind of, uh, she comes across as kind of obnoxious. But in, again, because of the great characterization you you buy her character and and it become it comes to this point where you know if a certain situation happens you know how rita is going to respond to it so just of how well characterized she is mm -hmm. and uh, which is very you know very hot-headed <laughs> most of the time you know yuri is of course a, a great character and i'm so sure you guys will uh, want to go deeper into that but a character that the the other annoying kid character that uh bill adventure mentioned Carol, I actually uh, really had a very, very, very soft spot for her. Uh, I mm. felt a great deal of empathy and pathos for him. Maybe it's also because, and this is uh, getting a, sounding a bit sappy and sentimental, but in many ways he re reminds me of my uh, six-year-old boy, being mm. all lo loud-mouthed and brash, and but actually having a lot of insecurities inside him, and, and uh, especially about people's expectations of him and uh, and and the kinds of pressure that he might experience so he really struck a struck a chord with me and uh... i think character wise it's really odd and just to reference pale avengers post i found that that rita was essentially yuri in female form except that she didn't hide her emotion like yuri does mm -hmm. because there are a couple of key points where yuri does stuff very much on his own that only repeat knows which i'll mention in a second yeah but that she she can't hide her rage in the moment so she gets dead angry but she's every bit as caring about the characters as yuri is yeah. and you know yuri is but she is constantly talking she even cares about judith even after she just finds out that judith's the person that she hates yeah um so i actually really liked rita as a character yeah. um carol the annoying character probably has the most important role in the whole party because he's the one who hasn't agreed with the other guilds that he's been in or he's been kicked out or he's been seen one way or another. 
when in actual fact he's so caring, but he's the one that has all the pressures of the world on him. So yeah. he, he's sort of the one that when he joins the party, he feels that maybe he's not good enough and he's surprised when you want to keep him around. Then he doesn't want to be called boss, even though he forms the guild with Yuri. Yeah. And he instantly looks up to Yuri as well. And he, and he looks up to Don Whitehorse and those events, and yeah. he has all these tragic things of the way that he's been brought up, and he is such a strong character in the core of this group. So, yes, he's 12. That That's the age of his character, I believe. And yeah. he has the immaturities to go with it, but he also has the most to live with in that in almost in that whole group. Yeah. Um, Estelise is the princess, but she has moments where she doesn't really understand the true purpose of her power, that... She doesn't. She isn't a member of Brave Vesperia for the longest time, and and they're doing the quests for her. Yeah, and she keeps hiring them, but she's learning out about her past. Yeah, uh, as we are. So I, I don't. Could... I, she never came across as a sort of a cliche princess at all for me. I only I see not for the first few hours. I think you could argue that Estelle is more of a device in some ways than a character if you compare it to the other very strong uh, pronounced characters in, uh, in yeah. the party. Uh, but, you know, you can't, uh, if you follow the game along with her, you can't help but feel empathy for, for her character as well, like the things yeah. she, she's going through. And, uh, yeah. And be I mean, she's the caring way. character. And, and um, the, the moment that she realizes that her power doesn't just heal, it has the opposite effect um, with Bellius and ends up sort of essentially condemning a character to death, you sort of realise that there is a depth to her history that becomes quite interesting at that moment mm. um, and that she's no longer just the princess uh, of the party. And I, I quite liked her as a character. Raven is... He has the... the probably the longest story arc and there's little hints as to why he's important as to and to what he is um which you do later find out in the game judith is probably the character i took to the least mm. but that's because she's intentionally elusive but the most important character yuri the uh, main protagonist is interesting not just because he's caring and uh he leads the party and you spend the most time but because I don't so much remember the last time I played a game like this where your character goes off and kills two people, yeah. mm-hmm. is clearly the one committing the villainous act and yet remains the hero. It's yeah. that it's a very strange take and it's quite dark and he admits, yeah, I'm a criminal and I'm living with it, but he's not a criminal like we've seen criminals cool in games. Mm. Um, you know... Uh, just to quickly draw reference to something like Persona 5, where you've got the phantom thieves, criminals, but in a completely different way. I mean, this is quite dark. Mm. He, yeah. In the middle of the night, he goes and stabs someone yeah. and Rapide is the loyal... Um, do- and he's not loyal because he's a dog, because Rapide actually has a history that's explained. But Rapide understands the motives of Yuri in committing these acts. And that is a really interesting moment in the story, because you realise that there's this whole side of Yuri that he keeps silent anyway, but then you understand after this why he keeps certain elements of his persona. You know, for a long time, I thought uh, Yuri, in that first scene where he uh, uh, kills the magistrate, uh, Rago, 
Uh, I actually f- thought he, it was we were supposed to think he killed uh, killed that guy that was yeah. framed in a certain way. For the longest time, I thought like, no, nah, he didn't really kill him. You know, like somebody else did, yeah. and we were just made to believe he he was the one who did it. I'm I'm glad uh, I'm glad that you guys brought that up because it is something that you really do not frequently see in this type of game is the main character he hasn't been possessed he hasn't uh, it's not a misunderstanding and the people that he kills are not good people but he does not fight them in some kind of honorable battle he does not try to resolve any of this in a in any kind of other way he straight up goes out in the middle of the night as you were saying and just murders them and it's 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 pretty rough it's not something that you expect from this type of game and in some way it comes back to him as well when uh sodia flint's uh, right hand uh stabs him in the chest uh, fairly late into into the game and the funny thing is if you see the character interactions between him and sodia later on she's all remorseful about it but he's kind of he kind of understands why she did it. He's kind of understanding of it, even though he's not letting her go out free, and he's telling her to you know face the consequences of what she has done, just like I have, and uh, and be uh, take take responsibility for your actions. Yuri, you know, has reasons for his motives. He was joining the Imperial Knights um, and dropped out. I mean, hands up if that sounds familiar to a leading JRPG <laughs> title, and um, he. So he does have this side, and his best friend, sort of Flynn, yeah, is is making sort of waves in the nights, and he always says, "Look, come back, come back. You'd be a great knight." But Yuri, obviously, very early on, is explained to you that he feels that the way that the knights go about stuff will never fix the issues that there are in the world. Yeah. But at no point, up until he stabs Ragu in the back, I mean, in the back, pretty much. <laughs> He just sneaks up behind him on the bridge. And up until that moment, you don't think it would ever go somewhere like murder. And as you say, these aren't characters that are dealt with at the end of battle because you do that in fights and you've done that in countless other JRPGs. These are events where you go to rest at an inn in a night and then the game shows you him sneaking out, killing the person, and then repeat seeing and sort of being like, I, you know, you get that. I understand why you've done it. Let's not tell anyone. Yeah. It's for the best. It's just a really strange, dark take that you don't expect because Tales does not come across as a, a game that is ever going to sort of lean on that darkness no. at all. It's a very bright, colourful game. Yeah. The characters are very emotive and young and fun and there's a lot of laughing and exactly. then it's, it has murder. A, the, <laughs> yeah, the tone is very breezy and it's not like these are very... He's a very sinister anti-hero or something uh, along those lines. He is an anti-hero character, of course, but not to that degree. You know, not like yeah. uh, like the protagonist of Dragon Guard, for example. Or, uh... There's there's an interesting contrast here between uh, Flynn, who we mentioned briefly, and Yuri. Um, the the prequel anime is actually a storyline that goes through the time when both of them joined the knights basically together. Uh, They are not exactly friends. They're kind of friendly rivals, and Mm, and you see that. Uh, But 
Flynn has kind of gone down one path and he has um, he has stayed with the Knights and he is a, a very law abiding, very stand up guy. Yeah. Yuri has gone the other direction where he left the Knights. He is still doing what he thinks is right. He's not, you know, some evil villain most of the time, but he he is focusing more on the people and less on the letter of the law and how yeah. the government thinks the people should be. Exactly. Uh, so, and I, I, you see this in a, a little bit in their visual design as well, which is kind of interesting. Flynn is, they, they both look like, look like anime characters basically, mm-hmm. but whereas Flynn is kind of the literal knight in shining armor, you know, he is very blonde. He is very, um, you know, blue-eyed, pretty boy. Uh, Yuri has, like, the long, dark hair. He's kind of skinny, you know. He's he's not... He doesn't look sinister, but he is a very direct contrast to how Flynn looks. So it kind of draws a, a sharp attention to how they yeah. are almost... They could have ended up... Either one of them could have ended up where the other one is. You know what's striking? It's like... I feel like Flynn is basically the Kai Kiske to Yuri Lowell's sole bad guy, if you uh, are familiar with Guilty Gear. I mean, it's mm. the, the striking thing is... All, the, it follows almost the same iconography to a T in, <laughs> uh, in how these characters are related to each other. Interesting. Um, the other character that I kind of wanted to touch on, uh, we, we talked about Rapide a little bit, and he is my favorite character. Uh, Rapide is, uh, Yuri's, it, it's an oversimplification to say that he is Yuri's dog, because he's not really just Yuri's dog. He is, uh, also Yuri's friend. Uh, when Yuri left the Knights, Rapide came with him. Uh, Rapide was not a, um just some stray dog he was actually trained in the nights when yuri was as a little puppy and you see his little puppy form in in the anime and it's very very cute um but he he is more a partner than than a pet uh by far and uh, you can this is in fact the first uh tales game that that allows you to play as a non-humanoid character and i kept repeat in my party almost all the time Mm -hmm. uh he's he's extremely useful he can fight just as well as any of the other characters and um i i I just enjoy that. I'm I'm kind of a sucker for uh, the dog characters in games. It's also uh, interesting also... that uh, in his default individual character strategies, Repeat is uh, set to attack the exact same enemies that Yuri attacks. Mm-hmm. So yes. he's basically like your your options, uh, like your option in a, a game like Gradius or something. <laughs> so sure. Yes. He tra- treasure he also has the he, thief he, skill. He boosts your combat ability. Hmm. He's also the only character with a default thievery skill, mm-hmm. right. um, which I always used in battle arts. Yes. Uh, well, well, I'm sure we'll mention the battle arts more in depth because it's the key part of the combat, but it was the ability to just, I would flick the joystick right and have him try and steal something was something that I utilized mm. uh, throughout the game. So um, I my, my party never never changed. Mine was always sort of Yuri, uh, Rita, Estelle, and uh, Rapide. Interesting. Uh, with that, un, un, until I had to swap repeat out for Raven or repeat out for Judith for certain moments in the game. Yeah. But that was always my party of four because that gave me the best synergy of two attacking, two uh, casters, um, two two forward, two back, that kind of thing. Um, and repeat, I always found, was the strongest one for it. And he always had really aggressive attacking arts as well that, that yes. sort of worked well with how I was playing the game. Although, interestingly, repeat is the only character that you can't, navigate as outside of battle i believe they actually did add that in the ps3 version i i, uh, I think yeah. that i read that they did that um that and um 
you do not have Flynn as a permanent party member. You get him for a battle, I believe. Um, yeah. But you uh, can't actually select him normally. Uh, the PS3 version, you can. And they also add a uh, completely separate character uh named patty who is a ps3 only character she is another um kind of childlike character who is a pirate um and again she's ps3 exclusive so i, I can't say much about her but uh, i can't obviously say. key to the story oh, yes obviously <laughs> um but uh yeah that, that's some of the uh, the differences in uh in uh, the PS3 version there. And uh, you mentioned, Carl, that you can navigate as different characters. Um, So you can also play as different characters. Um, You don't have to play as Yuri. You can only directly control one character uh, in battle. The others, you set up uh, a series of kind of um, behavior patterns so that they will uh, focus on offense, focus on defense, focus on the enemy that you are attacking, focus on the enemy that you are not attacking. You can can set up the different uh, skills and arts that they will use, uh, but it doesn't have to be Yuri that you are continuously controlling. Mm. Um, I think that most people probably default to that, but you you certainly do not have to. so the character that we glossed over the most was uh, Judith, maybe unsurprisingly. Uh, yes. I'd like to uh, <laughs> yeah. honor her character uh, with, uh, with go- <laughs> take my my take on her at least uh, a little bit, uh, which I found she was also yeah maybe the the, the most vague character, but perhaps intentionally so, uh, but quite amusing. I found her uh, aloof, uh, elfish behavior, and uh, you know she she. she most of the time, except where it uh, concerned uh, Baul and the Antelokea, she appeared quite unaffected and then mild, mild amused, uh, mildly amused with most of the other characters. And the, I think her voice acting was uh, was done pretty well as well. Yeah, she is, uh, we should mention, not actually human. She yeah. is uh, actually part of the race known as the Kritia. Uh, yeah. And she is there initially to destroy Blastia, not to actually save them. So um, it, yeah. it's kind of a, an interesting motivation uh, that you get some insight into if you do go through those skits and through the story as well. But uh, she's, yeah. I, I, I actually did keep Judith in my party a lot. Uh, my, my party was very similar to, uh, to the one that Carl mentioned, except I didn't usually use Rita. I usually use Judith. I tend to go very right. attack heavy in these kinds to parties so yeah uh, mine, mine was also similar to, to to carl but instead of repeat i used judith a lot uh, for her mm-hmm. uh, air game basically for all her jumps mm-hmm. and uh, yes and, uh, all that stuff Let's kind of move along to how the game looked. Now, we have mentioned a, a little bit about this, uh, how it is very bright. It is very colorful. Uh, it, it looks like an anime game, which uh, should not be completely surprising. And uh, this was the first uh, Tales game on this particular generation of consoles. Uh, and as I mentioned before, the only one on the 360 uh, and the only one on a, an Xbox console or any uh, Microsoft console, rather, uh, to date. So did you find anything striking about the way that this world looked? Uh, was it pretty much standard? Uh, what did you think of the character designs, uh, Mikhail? I think the game and its world looked very appealing and welcoming, even when grave danger was uh, was around the corner and its very existence was, was threatened. There was always something warm and friendly about its uh, its locales and the, the, the various towns and settings. Um, yeah, and I think overall the the, the art style is uh, was is quite a quite a success. Carl, it's the thing that drew me towards this game. I mentioned that the 360 was getting a lot of JRPGs at this time, and 
Blue Dragon obviously looked quite pretty. Eternal Sonata looked quite pretty. But there was just something about Tales of Vesperia. Uh, it may have been that, a uh, quick reference, it was like a really pretty Final Fantasy. Mm. And it, it could have been something subconscious um, and uh, and as fickle as that that drew me towards that this was the one I really wanted to play. That and the fact that Tales was uh, an established franchise for me um, and the only one that would have come close would have been Star Ocean for one that I'd heard of. And uh, I picked it up and visually it was very pretty and I enjoyed it. What I will say is that going back now, and this was a game that was released in 2008 and playing it in 2017, this game is gorgeous. Like, it looks really good now. And that's a 720p game running on Xbox 360. We mentioned several times, <laughs> to say the least, on Kane and Rince, that certain visual styles age a lot better than others. I mean, we recently covered Flashback, a game that is really pretty, and that so many games that followed it were early 3D games, and as a result, look rather ugly. This is a game that chose a very clever art style, utilised it very well mm. on Xbox 360 technology uh, and PS3, and as a result, now nearly a decade later, looks every bit as good as it did then, and I would argue better than several games that have been released rather recently. Um, it's, I find this jaw-droppingly beautiful to look at. Yeah, there's. it's also... What, what's, uh, what's also kind of neat is how uh, the um, because of the art style, the anime sequences uh, uh, sandwiched in between don't look out of place or very different at all. It all... No. suits each other yeah. very very nicely yeah definitely i think that um for uh many series including final fantasy uh at this time they would have been between final fantasy 12 and 13 and after 10 final fantasy kind of started to go down a more not realistic path but a, a, almost a grittier path visually mm -hmm. it was not the super colorful bright uh like this um in in particular, twelve and thirteen were more mechanically oriented, more uh, more sci-fi and less fantasy, despite the name, uh, in in visuals at least. And I think that this is kind of a breather from that. Uh, it it reminds me a bit of Blue Dragon. It reminds me a lot of Eternal Sonata, which we've brought up a couple of times. Yeah. Uh, I like this art style, and I do believe that it uh, it did age extremely well. Uh, and they've stuck with something very similar for uh, some of the later Tales games that have came after it, that have come after it, and. Uh, I, I think that it still works. I think it's a lovely thing to see and also to uh, to hear. Uh, so I, I'd like to read a little bit of a blip uh, that I took from Wikipedia here because there's some really interesting stuff going on uh, with the sound and the music here. Uh, the music was composed by Motoi Sakuraba, who had composed for nearly all of the previous Tales games and his regular partner, Shinji Tamura, the latter working under the alias Hibiki Aoyama. While creating the soundtrack, Sakuraba was caught in the transition between sequenced to pre-recorded streamed music, the latter of which gave room for rearrangements and improvisation mid-production. Sequenced music had been used up to Abyss, so it was the first time in the series that Sakuraba used this method, although he had done so for all of his other projects at the time. Uh, so it's... it's kind of interesting that the music in this was at a transitional period. Uh, what did you guys think? Uh, was it I, I really liked the music and in particular most of the world type music. I just mm -hmm. felt that it 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 reminisced of things like early Final Fantasy and like PS1 era Final Fantasy, but prettier, if that if that sounds about right. Mm. There are several times I hear music 
um, playing that I swear I've heard before. Mm -hmm. Now, having not played another Tales game, mm -hmm. that means that it would have had to have been in another JRPG. So, or similar. Um, so there are times when the music definitely doesn't sound unique, mm -hmm. um, but for the most part, it's nice, except for that horrific circus-style music oh, yes. that gets <laughs> on the comedy mo moments that I absolutely <laughs> detest. Yeah, that was um, not their strongest point. <laughs> no, it, it, it's, it doesn't flow at all with the rest of the game. Now, I understand why it, it sort of... It's... <laughs> I'm sure you've seen it in other JRPGs before. Like, you get these comedy sound bites that happen behind these moments. But it, for this, I found it really just uh, distracting. Yeah. yeah, and it doesn't flow with the rest of it. But for the the like the map music when you enter towns, that kind of thing, the music is really yeah. really nice. Now nothing nothing spectacular. This isn't rolling um, Final Fantasy style all guns blazing music at its best uh the battle music is a little more up-tempo but again unspectacular but it sort of stays in that safe area of music where it's yeah. nice and consistent throughout what i found uh interesting about the music is that it seems to be fairly short loops you know if you mm. went into towns yeah. or uh were experiencing certain events but that said uh, I thought they supported the scenes and the scenery very well. There's some very pretty little themes in it, like uh, in Aspio City or uh, in the, the Crystal Caves that you visited at a, light, uh, a late uh, point in the game. Uh, I think also the map themes uh, really nicely invoke the sort of this sense of freedom of traveling and, uh, and discovery. And one theme that really struck with me whenever it, uh, it appeared uh, was this uh, sort of... this. Uh, event uh, track that uh, played uh, st first started playing when you visit Capua Nor, and uh, the the the, this, the town is covered in uh, a, yeah this uh, thick rain clouds, and there's this you know the, the intrigue with this magistrate uh, going around and mm -hmm. meetings in hotel yeah. chambers, and the theme that plays uh, almost sounds like uh, Angelo Badalamenti inspired, like Twin Peaks inspired, mm -hmm. like this sort of mm -hmm. a, yes. Sort of a sinister undertone uh, that that makes an otherwise friendly-looking game feel, you know, somewhat uh, disturbing. Yeah, it definitely definitely feels a little uncomfortable when you enter Capua Nord, especially um, yeah. when when you've come from. I mean, this isn't long after you visited the likes of Halua and Aspio, and they're all very nice, pretty places. And then, yeah. you know, you get to Capua Nord, and the whole tone changes to this sort of really dark grey and purple. Um, yeah. Color palette and and this sort of this this music um, it, that definitely felt like the first time that the the changed up the the the, the sort of audio style um, yeah. to to complement the environment. I think so, and it's also a part in the story where uh, that reveals reveals some more of it uh, of a darker side than you've. Uh, uh, yeah. experienced up until that point because you find out that uh, Rago has uh, been up to all sorts of disgusting and nefarious things in his uh, dungeons. Yeah. yeah. Mm, yes. And then of course Capua Turim just over the water is all nice and bright and colourful again <laughs> so it, 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 it yeah. does do that sort of strange thing and, and I don't think you necessarily get that 
darker style again until you go to the the manor about pretty much the halfway point of the game to go and chase after Don Whitehorse. Mm. Um, after that, other than Capua no, uh, and the manor, it's pretty much a nice, colourful environment. Yeah. We've talked uh, here and there about the gameplay and about how it's different from uh, other JRPGs that have kind of preceded it, but very similar to uh, some of the Tales games that have come before it. Uh, so the biggest thing is that you do need to pay attention to where you are on the field because this is an active system. It is not turn-based. It uh, it does have some restrictions on when you can do different things, uh, but those are largely more like cooldowns than they are like turns. Um, I mm-hmm. found this style to be very complimentary to people who get frustrated by things like, well, this is yeah. obviously going to hit me because it's going to go when its turn is and I can't really do yeah. anything about it unless I'm defending, but then I lose my turn. That's something that turns a lot of people off of JRPGs, and I completely understand that. Here, if you're pretty good, there are a lot of things that you can simply avoid by paying attention to where your enemy is, how he's turned. Uh, you yeah. meet them on the field uh, in in the vein of something like a Chrono Trigger, but you are moved to a separate arena for the fighting. So it's not random encounters, but it is yeah. removed yeah. from the actual field itself. The, the outcome uh, of the battle... Uh, are not solely defined uh, by your stats. It, uh, mm-hmm. you know, there's there's a, a deal of skill and uh, clever tactics in play uh, that uh, yeah make it very uh, very involved. Yeah, that's so. In the beginning, I was talking about my uh, personal reservations uh, in regard to JRPGs, right? And the, the standard uh, tropes mm-hmm. of the yes. of the genre. So uh, one thing that that I uh, um, Basically, you know, one one of those tropes is indeed the standard turn-based battle that when it's not framed in an interesting tactical situation, like in a, a game like Fire Emblem, it's uh, it feels like overly archaic because, you know, it, in, uh, in a pen and paper RPG, it's perfectly all right that you need to throw dice and take turns uh, to, uh, to attack because that's the limitation set upon by the medium. Uh, but... In a video game, you can do so much more with uh, with enemy encounters. Uh, and the other thing is the uh, the uh, random battles. Like this doesn't make any sense to me in uh, in standard JRPGs because it's this thing like you know suppose it's supposed to simulate an ambush, right? Like your your party is getting ambushed. Well, if your party is getting ambushed, like every step they take, they must be the most unassuming, happy-go-lucky <laughs> band of warriors ever ever controlled. They they can't see, you know, any anyone rolling up on the on, on them until they're right on top of them. So there's still uh, be, uh, because of the way uh, the enemies appear in the field, they can sometimes appear quite quickly in front of you. Uh, so I think it's good that they didn't go the complete other uh, route with it especially not on the, on the maps uh on the map screens so you can mm-hmm. still get ambushed when you when an enemy uh materializes right uh, right close to you or sometimes when you have the camera uh, when the cam- uh, when you don't twist the camera a certain way which makes sense as well but uh yeah so the, these are already major plus points for me i think they were for a lot of people yeah the active system isn't the most common system in jrpgs it- we've we've seen it before but it definitely adds a different style now you mentioned like how the some of the things that people hate about turn-based is that you know that your enemy is going to do this and this 
then drain something and then attack that kind of thing and this removes that sense of inevitability uh, of you're just waiting for the one big attack that's going to take out your whole party um, because you can run around, you can avoid, at least when the game lets you, there is a strange bug where it doesn't always let you run and you got to let go of the stick and the and the tr- uh, trigger. But that aside, you can constantly move. And I always, because I, my party was uh, set, I would always have down on the right stick set to the recovery art for Estelle so she could get rid of any effect that I'd had on, put on me, um, such as poison or... Uh, you know that that kind of ilk, um, mm. and up on the right stick would always be first aid. So I could run around, and because I was always more of a quote unquote tank than she was, I would more often than not draw the attention. So I could just run away from the enemy, and she'd be healing me. <laughs> mm. So that sort of removed that horrible sense of inevitability to huge attacks coming um, on a on a turn, and then I could get nearer to say repeat and then sort of mount a two-on-one attack back. So it always definitely freed it up for me, the active system. And you can also flick between your three modes, the manual, semi-auto, and auto, although manual was horrible. Um, So I'd always play on semi-auto because that locked onto an enemy, had you fight them, then moved to the next enemy automatically. And other than that, it was manual. But every so often, if I was getting a bit frustrated or I wanted to get a drink, I could just hit the back button, go to automatic, and have uh, my character use the fight and because i wasn't a huge user of my tp level for my magic or skills um it wasn't such an issue when the ai was was using it and a uh, level uh, returns it quite quickly anyway through standard attacks mm-hmm. uh, so the active system worked really really well for me with this game i i really played i i played uh, yuri most of the time uh and i really Played him like a like a, a combo heavy character in a fighting game. So I, I actually I found it much later in the game because I didn't have the manual and the battle book uh, and the tutorials in the game are uh, not easy to uh, to get through. No, I only found out quite late in the game that you can actually set other people's arts to your C stick. So I had all all oh. uh, Yuri's best arts set to the, I had the arcane arts set to the right stick. And uh, the base art set to uh, you know the directions uh, with uh, with the uh, A button. Uh, so I was basically, uh, and even after I found out, I still kept it that way. So I tried to govern what my party was doing by setting their individual strategies and mm-hmm. giving them directions on the fly. Like if the battle situation would turn, I would, for example, ask them to defend, or I would ask them to go go in full charge, or ask them to uh, be moderate and their individual strategies. And I would just leave. The spell casting everything up to them, uh, and just you know like go do crazy damage with uh, with chains and combos with uh, using all my mm-hmm. all my all Yuri's base art. So I used a lot of TP all the time. I was somewhere in the middle of those two approaches. I think I uh, I did not. I actually found that the AI for your party tends to be pretty good um, if you yeah. have them set to use the things that you that you want them to use in yeah. general. They usually, I didn't have to manage them very much. I tended to focus mostly on Yuri and what he was doing. Um, now I would usually keep a, uh, a recovery art somewhere on one of my, uh, one of my um, quick commands. But uh, for the most part, it seemed like they didn't need to be told most of the time. They would just kind yeah. of go ahead yeah. and do it. Uh, which which was great. I, I I enjoy that they uh, that they didn't need that kind of micromanaging, and that that is something that um, 
I, I know we keep referencing Final Fantasy, but it's an easy comparison to make. Uh, Final Fantasy twelve, which did come uh, before this, had sort of a similar thing going on where you could micromanage your party and you, you could choose who you wanted to actually be the one that you were directly controlling. But they would also, if you had them set up in the way that you wanted them set up, they would also just kind of do their own thing. Um if you if you had them set up right so uh this yeah. is something that is not is not unheard of but it's certainly not the most common way to to see your party kind of going which i i liked a lot i think the battle system is the thing that makes this the least daunting mm-hmm. uh, of the major jrpg series now this this has many ways that it goes about stuff um that our in terms of how you can commit to your battle mm-hmm. so each character has a certain amount of skills that they can utilize. They've got a certain maximum limit of TP, and these skills cost uh, have various costs. So some might be cost 11, which is a huge chunk out of your resources. Some are ones, such as experience share, which you really want on every character because you want them to level up when they're not in battle. Yeah. Um, and then I would have, I believe on Estelle, I would have something like Happiness 2, which allowed her to generate TP back at the end of the battle because she was my heavy healing spellcaster. Mm-hmm. But it also meant that because I'd balanced the battle out like that, my character could never actually use an item to heal someone else. So I didn't have the ability to hand a, an item like a lemon gel or a melange gel or something like that to to a teammate, which is really weird because that's how I played every other JRPG ever is that I'm the one healing left and right and center and to to not have to worry about that because of the way the AI set out with the, the commands that you can issue them for how they automatically play or the way they heal or the fact that I can uh, put those quick skills so I, I had three skills set indefinitely to my stick so first up was first aid via Estelle, down was uh, recovery via Estelle, right was thievery by Rapide, and then I changed the left one to uh, any number of Ritas because she had some fantastic spells. You know, Fireball was super handy at the start of the game, but then she had really good ones after. So the, the ability to alter that one around was fantastic, and I'd find myself turning on and off skills on these certain characters until I found a skill set that I no longer needed to alter. So I didn't ever have to heal my characters. Right. Come to think of it now, I might have have a, a much easier time with the final battle if I uh, would have yeah. uh, mapped Estelle's, uh, I think it's recovery, or the, the part where she lifts uh, curses or ailments off of yeah. people too. recovery, that's what I have found. In the final button, right basically... Down. Every time you get hit, you get some sort of ailment uh, mm-hmm. touch on you. So I was going into the menu all the time using Panasia bottles and uh, and weak bottles and uh, what have you. That was it. So which, it was a very, very stop-and-go experience. And I so. had all my AI party to be able to use stuff if they wanted. So they had free reign over my inventory for, for healing themselves or for taking recovery off if Estelle wasn't doing yeah. it for them. And and that that was absolutely fantastic for me. It was it was a you know a proper game changer because I could have there was the three different happiness skills which were the ones that I always wanted to learn because you learn your skill sets through weapons. Mm-hmm. So you would equip a weapon for them and then once that weapon has hit its level mm. Uh, they've learned those skills, and then you can turn them on and off, and they no longer need that weapon. So as soon yeah. as happiness was an option, I'd teach them. So Rapide, he had the happiness one, I believe, which allowed him to recover HP at the end of a battle because he was getting stuck in on fights like me. So we needed to recover health, but my casters had to recover magic. So they would have happiness two turned on. And the ability to sort of change stuff out in battle 
meant that the system that they used was far more important uh, in, in terms of how important all that was in battles than I find other JRPGs. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And even, even if I put them into automatic battle, they, this would still play out that same way. So it was a really, really well-implemented system. And then, obviously, as you're learning the more skills via synthesizing new weapons, etc., they would balance in. And if there was something that I really wanted that they just learned, I'd change those around. So my uh, my mages no longer needed physical combat. And because I was up in the faces of the enemies, they could also have a weaker physical defense. So I'd up their magical defense for attacks. And it yeah. all played really, really well. I mean, the only time that the actual combat system fell apart is if I wasn't Yuri, because mm. I did not like playing it as a Rita or as an Estelle, um, uh, the, the casting system, which in its own right was kind of interesting because the spells have different lengths and you can hold down your button for a more powerful attack, but then you need longer to cast it because any contact will disrupt it. So you're running for ages to turn around to try and fire a spell off, that kind of stuff. But that just wasn't for me. And I mean, it's nothing too dissimilar to anyone who's played like a Baldur's Gate or a Diablo knows about getting these spells out. It sort of plays that style. Um but I was I've, I found that the system built around the smart AI and actually getting in the faces of the enemies and fighting was fantastic. Yeah, yeah, it's really interesting to hear this because it's so uh, the game uh, the game's combat is so customized, endlessly customizable. Mm-hmm. Then, yeah, as I said, I used Yuri with all 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 his uh, best arts, uh, and I was leveling up his arts as well and make turning them into altered arts, and then u- using the over limit uh, system to create long chains and then finish up with uh, with burst arts or even later on mystic arts uh, which really you know did a number on some very uh, annoying boss uh, boss characters i mean there is so much depth to the combat i mean we haven't even referenced the fact that you do still have the uh, different elemental damage attacks you've got air attacks you can manually attack down to the ground up in the air or level you've got, you've got criticals yeah. um there is a lot in there and the game does an awful job of explaining yeah, it to really you. Not great. In, there are in some the tutorials books. in there, but they're kind of buried and not that great to begin with. Um, but yeah, I, they're, yeah. very, they're very basic. They just teach you the absolute basics, mm-hmm. but not, none of the nuance or uh, of what mm-hmm. you can actually really do. I think the uh, manual does a much better job. So I felt <laughs> sorry for Mikel when he said he didn't have a manual and I was reading it and it's a big weighty mm-hmm, manual yep. before yeah. they kind of stopped doing that. <laughs> and it's all one language. Like I thought, oh, this is a, this is a multilingual manual here and it wasn't nope. the whole thing's in english <laughs> yeah. and it is thick <laughs> yeah it was it was for me only halfway through the game that uh, the combat really started opening up when i started to read more into uh, to it online as well because i it was very hard to gauge uh, anything from the from the uh battle book inside the game itself so you know then i started figuring out oh so i can link a, a base art into an arcane art uh and uh, this uh, but what's an arcane art so i had to go into the menu and then read the different art uh, art descriptions and oh okay in this description of this art it says it's arcane art you know <laughs> so it was a lot of a lot of figuring out a lot of discovery i had to do yeah. but once it all clicked it's uh i really started enjoying it it's almost you know it lacks of course the combat lacks, lacks the fluidity of a of a character action game or but it's i yeah. certainly played the game that way in a very uh to for as much as i as much as i could and mm. and just left all the the other stuff uh up to the my party members yeah and and just to sort of 
add one further thing because there's so much to talk about in this game and, and as in-depth and key as the battle system is, it's not something that we can keep hitting on and hitting on and hitting on, is that one thing I appreciated so much about this game is the little touches that they take to so many elements. So there are so many weapons that you can use. So your, uh, Yuri can use axes and swords, for example, uh, He's uh, and Carol can use swords and hammers, that kind of thing. And each of those weapons look different and you will see the character using that weapon in battle and there are so many arts that come in and they've all got little animations and they're all unique and you don't even need to start reading the name of what they are at the top as the cast because you can actually see from the animations of what's happening mm. there is so many little touches of care and love that went into the battle system you get accessories that will change the look of your character. And there are so many of these visual changes and little touches in the animations that are not something that I would naturally associate with a JRPG. And that's not a negative slight at JRPGs. It's just that they don't normally no. go to the nth degree that, that, that Tales of Vesperia undoubtedly did. And it's a very pretty game anyway. So to add, you know, all these uh, tweaks to the way the characters look. And I mean, even when it went to a cutscene and suddenly... Um, Yuri had an axe in his hand and I'd only just equipped the axe for the first time when I picked one up. And I was like, did I just see the... But I thought that was, like, as Mikhail said earlier, the they flow really well between the cutscenes and the games and you can't necessarily quickly tell which is which. And I thought I was watching a, like a hand-drawn animated cutscene and it wasn't, it was in engine because he had the weapon that I'd just equipped to him. Mm. So little things like that mean so much to me. When I was playing this, it would have been easy for them to kind of um, to kind of get away with not going as in depth with the yeah. combat system, given how much they are clearly focusing on the character interactions and that kind of thing. But they they really yeah. did. I um I I have a particular fondness for um and uh, take another shot because I'm about to mention Final Fantasy again. Um, Final Fantasy IX actually does something very similar with the uh, weapon system where there are skills equipped to certain weapons that you yeah. learn as you do uh, as you use that weapon more and i really like that that particular yeah. feature that was something that i uh, i was glad to see here um so yeah i i just th this battle system i i think mikhail you were comparing it to a, a fighting game almost and and it is it certainly can be mm. uh there are different levels of engagement that you can have with this and and i think that they all really just work well um did either of you yeah. mess with the multiplayer at all? Uh, because apparently yeah, there I is. Yeah, I wanted to bring that up actually before we before we completely uh, yeah. skip over it. No, but I think it's I think you have to have some really good conditions to have the people grab controllers and yeah. uh, and work in unison with you Definitely. together. I have I had more confidence in the AI than uh, if I would get my kids to uh, join in. With I think I probably would too. <laughs> so the uh, the multiplayer mode uh, is uh, four player multiplayer and it is local only and it basically just allows other people to take control of your party members and uh, to actually play along with you, which is yeah. really interesting because you never see that in JRPGs almost ever. No. Uh, and yeah. I, I would I would like to see. I'm not sure that I would like to play it like that, but I would like to see how it works. Like I, I might yeah. uh, try and look up some videos and yeah. see people playing together to see, because it seems like you could really do some damage if you have people who are proficient with those battle yeah. systems actually in sync. It's great that you said that you pointed that out, uh, that uh, you almost don't see that in uh, in JRPGs because, 
you know, it, it could lead if you actually have a good uh, group of people around and play this game together who are tuned into each other. It could lead to a fact where you're no longer role-playing a full party, so to speak, but mm-hmm. everybody's role-playing their character to, uh, sure. to a certain extent, at least. Mm. That's combat. Uh, in, in, the, in the post-game as well, you have the, um, like on your second playthrough or uh, after, you've got the Colosseum 200-man mm-hmm. melee that's there, or you've got the Labyrinth of Memories, which is a huge amount of battles. So in they would make more sense for the four-player local co-op Ooh. in playing those because there is a huge amount of battles to be had there. Mm-hmm. Whereas having one person progress through a JRPG, which we know aren't quick games, <laughs> and then their group of friends suddenly reach for the controllers at every battle seems a little like odd. But yeah. the fact that there is actually huge combat-related stuff post-game means that it actually does have a practical use yeah. in a JRPG as well. What I will say is that I... Um... Not so much now, but uh, when I was in college, there were definitely times where um, I had a roommate who um, she and I had both played a lot of Final Fantasy, and I could still just sit down and watch while she was playing, say, Final Fantasy VIII was the one that we played the most of, mm-hmm. and um, it it kind of would have been fun at that point to be able to you know, grab a controller and go in on some of the battles so i'm not necessarily in a position now where i could have done where i could make use of that but um i i think that that's that's something that um that has some potential uh yeah and i, I know it's going to be limited to uh, a certain number of people who would get any use out of that but it's it's kind of cool that it's there yeah it's great that it's there yeah with something like Final Fantasy XV, for example, oh, would lend yeah, itself definitely. far more to play. Yeah, that kind of thing. Yeah, oh, I played a lot of that game. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, any anything else to say about uh, the combat system? I mean, I feel like we must be missing something because there's so there is, there there's is so is a much. Lot. There's a lot. It, yeah, there's what, the, the over limits. It's the core. Uh, the over limits. Yeah. Uh, the meter usage also. Also, very late in the game, I figured out I could, uh, with individual strategies, set, uh, set party members to use over limit, mm-hmm. which I thought, oh, that's that's cool. They also can do these big super moves now. So I started doing that, but I didn't realize they all take from the same bar. So <laughs> that means I didn't have yeah. any resources to use over limit uh, anymore. So I turned that that off quickly. But yeah, over limit is basically your tool to creating large damaging combos. Uh, so if you use a single bar. Uh, it raises your attack uh, power and you can link and chain moves together that you normally couldn't. It's almost like the uh, uh, custom combo in uh, Street Fighter Alpha. And then uh, in, on level 2, uh, you don't knock enemies down. So you can keep uh, keep combo chains going. And this is something you can, when you build up a bar by, uh, by doing damage and receiving damage, you can decide to stock it or, uh, or use it. Uh, so you can choose to use only one bar, or if you have two bars build up, you can uh, u- uh, use both of them in one go. And uh, from what I noticed, that it uh, if you use it uh, a level two over limit, for example, um, you uh, I think it's uh, the duration of the over limit state uh, mm-hmm. is a, is a little bit uh, longer. Also, uh, yeah, so you can do this. Uh, um, you can you can make longer combos because the the uh, enemies won't get knocked down. Mm-hmm. Now it took me a long time also to figure out how to uh, get uh, to be able to use uh, 
more than uh, level two over limit. And you actually have to synthesize uh, some items for that. The same for mm -hmm. level four as well. And then select the special skill to be able to uh, use mystic arts. Uh, but yeah, level three, uh, you can uh, actually uh, start using a mystic art once you have the, the skill learned for it. And your arts will stop using uh, uh, TP at that point. And then level four, which is the greatest, which I used against uh, late, late game bosses uh, whenever I could, also abusing uh, limit bottles to raise your uh, over limit bar. Uh, so then you wait till you have four bars saved up and you uh, instantly activate all four bars at once for, uh, for a level four over limit. Uh, you basically become invincible, which is a god uh, send because uh, a lot of boss characters will actually interrupt your uh, chains uh, yeah. when you're uh, be below level four. So. Level four uh, overlimit basically insert uh, massive combo damage to yes. to enemies. Yeah, we you had briefly mentioned um, the synthesis. We didn't even get into the synthesis or the cooking or anything like that. There is a yeah. lot to go through in this game, um, but uh, you can kind of get into that uh, if you if you choose to uh, play uh, the games, which I highly encourage that you do. No spoilers for, mm -hmm. for wrap-ups, but uh, I'd like to talk briefly uh, before we move on to some community feedback uh, about the tie-in movie, which I've mentioned a couple of times. Um, have either of you actually seen it? That's a no. <laughs> okay. Yeah, I've, no, I've saw, I, 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 I watched it before I started playing the game, actually. Oh, okay. So, yeah. I've oh, seen nice. It. Yeah, yeah. I, uh, I I had seen it when it got its Blu-ray release, which was several years ago, um, but I, I watched it again this morning, and um, it's called Tales of Vesperia, The First Strike, and it is a, uh, a prequel where you see a few of the characters who uh, will later show up, such as Rita and, um, and Raven, uh, both make appearances, and you also mostly, though, focus on... Um, Yuri and on um, Flynn, who were in yeah. the nights together, which you find out during the course of the game itself. And uh, this is kind of a, a lead up to why Yuri is so frustrated and so against many of the things that the knights are doing. It sets up some of the uh, conflict between him and Flynn. Uh, and you also get introduced yeah. to little puppy Rapide and find out why he has <laughs> his pipe. So that's, that's pretty cute. Uh, his pipe is uh, actually from uh, the commander of the army who is uh, killed uh, towards the end of the uh, of the movie and uh, you see this little puppy going around chewing on sometimes he's carrying a bone he picks up a spoon at one point he has a twig he's always got something that he's chewing on and then towards the end uh, the commander has had this pipe for the entire time and uh, when he dies repeat takes that and that's what you see on him later so that's why the dog is smoking a pipe uh, there is actually a story reason <laughs> behind it yeah the, the, the thing that kind of contradicted uh, anime with uh, the game for me was mm. Or is that um, in the game they constantly are talking about the fact that Yuri has never left the lower quarter, and they're they're you know oh, hit both him and Flame are from the lower quarter, but they're in the the anime they're stationed in some sort of uh, remote area, aren't they? Yeah, they are. That that is true. I hadn't actually considered that, but um, maybe that is a well, no, because they know he used to be a knight, so that might just be a, yeah. a little bit of a plot hole there. <laughs> But uh, overall, yeah. I overall I did enjoy uh, the anime. It, it's it looks very similar to the uh, the yeah. game. So I mean, there's there's visual continuity there, um, and uh, you you get a little bit of that backstory 
in retrospect. There have also been uh, manga series focusing on different characters, and uh, I have not actually read any of those, but apparently they are pretty plentiful. Uh, there's a number of them. Uh, so there mm. are, if you get into the world, uh, a number of ways to uh, to kind of continue your time with that. Uh, so let's go ahead, and uh, we didn't get a whole lot of community feedback, but we did get some, so thank you to everybody who contributed. And uh, I would like to uh, kind of go into our, our later stations of, uh, of the show this time with uh, a post from uh, Michael Eddy on the forum, uh, and he says... Tales of Vesperia is a comfort food RPG and a great demonstration of Tales games to this day since. It knows exactly what it is and delivers on an almost annual basis now, but back in 2009, this game was the perfect conclusion to an arc of seeing Symphonia create a path to success, Abyss evolving the formula, and Vesperia finally laying on the polish and preparing the series for its long nesting as the king of its own niche. Vesperia is a gentle game with a big heart. It has a determined soundtrack, first-rate animation, strong and memorable bonds between characters, one of the less transparent twists of the Tales series, and an addictive gameplay system where not once could I become complacent in battle for worry of a low rank. It's simply the complete package. On the flip side, it's simply a little too nervous to push the series past the classics of the genre in whole. The Tales series serves a home at the big table, and as far as this game did push, I just can't see it crossing that bridge. For what there is, you are left with a defining classic from the 360 library, and arguably the strongest Japanese localized exclusive to the Xbox 360. Vesperia, like Final Fantasy VII, may be seen as the commercial breakthrough for the series, and in a similar way, I see it as the defining game of the series. There's just so much to love about this game. To come back to the comfort food, though, that's its only real drawback and ultimately its double-edged sword. The series really doesn't make many missteps like the others. Grace's F, Zillia, Zisteria, and Berseria are all mighty fine games and always welcome to stay on my collection's top shelf, but as hard as they try, that X-Factor just won't relieve, reveal itself to propel the series further at this stage, and as a longtime fan, I can only urge the developers to brave that step. With no reservations, I recommend the game highly. Should you play just one Tales game, look no further. Thank you very much. So let's have some uh, three-word reviews, which we generally call for on the day of recording, and you can find at Kanan Rince on Twitter. Dan Rice said, what a game. Gender neutral. Anime that's playable. Liam McMullen says, love, justice, sexuality. And Michael Edwards said, blast your core processing. I liked that one a whole lot. (laughs) (laughs) So uh, let's... There's so much here, <laughs> but if we can, let's uh, let's give it a shot to uh, to summarize our thoughts. Um, let's start with uh, Carl. It's hard to summarize exactly why there are so many things that I love and several things that I dislike about Tales of Vesperia. So I'll give it my best shot. Now, as a negative, it's hard to levy it at the game because if it were that easy, every game would do this. And it's something that Mike Leddy pointed to in his review. And I don't necessarily feel like the other Tales games haven't come up to par. I would say that it's a cross, and I think Vesperia is guilty of it too. That for all the positives that this game has, that I'll again repeat in a second, I feel like for far too many times, Tales of Vesperia plays it too safely. So the characters are pretty safe, aside from Yuri and the, the whole murdergate thing that went on which was kind of unexpected and i didn't see um and the the twist with uh raven was pretty well done and at certain points are alluded to but there is nothing 
about any of the characters that bring it to a level that we've seen with other RPGs. You know, there is no super amazing female Chie character. There is no um, turning moment of Ares. There's these key moments in JRPG character history that people point to as great characterization. The characters in Vesperia are good. They are never truly great defining JRPG characters. And I feel the music the same way. I said none of it was offensive. I don't feel like any of the music in this game is spectacular. This is not an Uematsu spectacular clinic on on how you do genre-defining themes. That's not there. This isn't the game for that. The environments are super pretty. Graphically, it is jaw-droppingly gorgeous. But are any of the environments truly iconic? Is there a, a Mako reactor? Is there an opening canyon like there is in Lost Odyssey where everything is so huge and uh, as a lost soul? Is, <laughs> there is no nothing that is as cool or as stylish as Persona 3 through 5 do it. The, and it, I don't think that it couldn't be that. I just think that it was afraid to step too far out of bounds and try and do something different. And that sounds awfully damning for a game that has a rather special battle system and has all these little touches with post-fight animations and speeches. We've seen it in games. This game has so many of them and they're so adorable from Estelle desperate for someone to give her a high five or... (laughs) Um, Rapide reacting to being called Spot or Yuri telling everyone to, you know, calm down. And these are things that I genuinely loved about this game. And when the things that I love are the small elements, the little things, the little visual tweaks, the little animations, the little sound bites, you need something major for me to love, whether it's story, whether it's uh, truly outstanding, uh, groundbreaking characters, locations, music. There's got to be something that I look and say that that is how it's done. And that is where Tales of Vesperia misses the boat for me. It just feels too safe. And it's got the elements to be able to be bigger than that, to be broader than that. It's got arguably the best real-time combat system in RPGs. There you go. Uh, and but but you aren't selling a game on that. You aren't selling an RPG on that. You can sell uh, a Devil May Cry on a great combat system. You can sell Gears of War on a great cover system. But they are a different genre in JRPG. They are so big, so sprawling. It has to come down to the characters, or the environments, or the story, or the tone. And none of that stands out in Tales of Vesperia. And for that. It's not the best RPG RPG on Xbox. That, for me, is still Lost Odyssey. It's not the best JRPG that you can play on relatively modern consoles now. That is Persona 4 Golden on the Vita. Or if you want to go back to PS2, you've got Persona 3. If you want to play on PS4, Persona 5. This There is something that when you play a Persona game that elevates itself and you go, wow, this is doing something truly special. Tales of Vesperia doesn't have that. However, it never falls to a level where it's awful. 
stupid circus soundbite aside. And is that good enough for me to recommend it? Yeah, (laughs) absolutely. Mm -hmm. It's a beautiful looking game. I don't think the environments are anything that I loved exploring. It doesn't have the story of a Lost Odyssey, which is where that game truly stands up. And I love the characters in that game. But it it's not it's not bad at anything. And I hate to recommend a game on it just not being bad. But at the same time, I can't praise it like I want to praise other JRPGs. And that's in spite of me wanting to love this game. So for the combat system alone. And if people who are always being afraid or intimidated by JRPGs, because they can be daunting, I understand that entirely. I'm not, I, I'm someone who buys a lot of them. I don't necessarily play them all because I know that that 40, 50, 80, 100 hours is a huge time sink. But for anyone who wants to get into it, this may be the best entry point to start your education with JRPGs because it's not always easy to go back. People might say Final Fantasy VII. The game has aged. There are there are better JRPGs than that now, and I'll probably get shouted down on Twitter for that at a later date, but they genuinely are. The combat system in this is what may bring people new to JRPGs and get them an interest in how stories are told, how characters are developed, and for that, I would absolutely recommend Tales of Asperia. Yeah, I... I agree with a lot of what you said there. Um, I I think that the point that I was going to make is that I think that this is a very accessible entry point for people who either have not liked JRPGs, have not played JRPGs, have maybe played a little but have had some issues with them. I think that this is a good thing for that. Uh, if you're not as steeped in that particular type of story, if this is something that you're coming into for the first time or close to the first time, then maybe you won't be quite as jaded's too strong a word, but quite as used to some of the tropes that it uses. You may have a strong reaction to some of the characters. I can't say that for sure, because I am extremely steeped in uh, JRPG mm. uh, tropes and lore and styles and all of that. Um, what, I, what I can say is that I... I never felt that I should not have been playing this in favor of being of, in favor of playing something else. Um, I, I enjoyed my time with it, and maybe it does not have some of the super highs that that some other games do, but it's it's enjoyable all the way through. There are things that I really really like about it, like the combat system, like the uh, the skill system with uh, being able to uh, learn your skills and then equip them in whatever way you see fit. I, I really like all of that stuff. The skits for me, the little stuff is is what really makes it. Uh, yes, maybe the overall storyline and um, and everything about it is is on a large level not completely striking, but there are some of those little moments that I think will stick with me a lot more than in some other games. Uh, So I I do recommend Tales of Vesperia as a good entry point into the Tales series, uh, as a good entry point into JRPGs. If you have a 360 or access to a 360, then, I mean, you could could do a lot worse, particularly now that it's... um, become a little bit easier to find than than it was a couple of years ago. Uh, I, I think that you, 
if you like this particular style, if you like uh, kind of an anime-styled game, uh, then then I do recommend it. I think that there's a lot to learn, a lot to like, and uh, it's not the most spectacular game out there, but I enjoyed all of my time with it, and I think that most other people uh, likely will as well. Mikhail, bring us home. So I guess that would be, be me, right? That yeah. person that uh, doesn't play a lot of JRPGs. <laughs> yep, I'm talking to you. Yeah, and I, that I've uh, emphasized that on no, numerous occasions throughout this uh, this podcast uh, episode. So it's it's very interesting to listen to what you guys were saying because yeah, I, I just I realized what uh, what actual JRPG fans uh, made me realize what actual JRPG fans like so much about the genre, and that's not so much the combat or the play mechanics, but more the story and the music and the the characters. Uh, it seems like the priority lies there a lot more. And maybe that's why they traditionally haven't gelled all that well uh, well with me because yeah, I want I want some more substance out of play mechanics usually. And that's what uh, Tales of Vesperia uh, definitely delivers for me. Um, so yeah, this was basically the first uh, Japanese RPG that I played all the way through and I had a lot more fun that, uh, with it than I thought I would be having. Because I was looking, yeah, I was I was a little bit intimidating by the uh, the, the long uh, sure. the time sink that that it would take. Um, so yeah, as as usual for what I've experienced from the genre, exploration was uh, fairly limited. Like you got your fairly linear dungeons and your overworld map, uh, but I found the world and the way it was characterized appealing and inviting, and uh, it was uh, yeah, it was a good place to be for me. And the combat was right up my alley. Uh, but I'm not going to lie and state that, uh, that there was no element of uh, repetition for it uh, because it, it has a very large emphasis in the game and you're playing this same game for about roughly 60 hours. So, you know, at, at one point you're going to find optimal strategies or optimal tactics and stick to that. And, you know, to be able to level up and uh, stand a better chance against bosses, you you need to be fighting a lot. So it, it's it's definitely going to... It was definitely... Uh, grating on me uh, on a couple of times where oh yeah another battle another battle another battle so I would actually if I wouldn't have been playing for a deadline I would have taken longer breaks in between with the danger that uh, that uh, one of those breaks would le- uh, lead uh, to me uh, leaving the game by the wakes- uh, wayside so that's the other counterpoint of it because I was playing for a deadline I actually got to see it all the way through uh, and last night, because I got a lot of uh, work shoved my way uh, in uh, in the two, last two weeks, so that was messing up with my playing schedule a little bit. Uh, I pulled an all nighter to be able to finish it in time wow. for the uh, for the podcast. So I was playing till from nine p.m. in the evening till uh, eight uh, thirty uh, a.m. Uh, and uh, with with one uh, small power nap in between from three to four. Um, dedication because I really wanted to see it through and I was really working towards that conclusion so I really wanted to to get there Uh, and I was because of you know this this uh, the deadline stress I was uh, very happy for it to see it over with but it was a very it ended up a very bittersweet thing to me finishing the game because it felt because all the time I spent with the with the very well characterized characters uh, it felt like ending, you know, finishing up reading a, a very no- uh, enjoyable novel and having lived with the characters for so long and wanting to stay with them. And I wanted to find out how they would live the rest of their lives 
after the events and after the final boss battle and the final events of the game. So yeah, I I wouldn't mind the Tales of Vesperia too. Actually, uh, maybe the the lack of self discovery of the characters what would make the the sequel less interesting in terms of dr- drama and dynamics. But it would be I would really quite like to see how the how the gang and the rest of the world would cope with their new lives after the uh, destruction of the Blastias, and uh, maybe a possible new threat uh, be servicing. And in the end, you know, there's also uh, what, uh, there are also among the many enemies that you fight, there are sharks with legs in there, which is always a plus point with me. Always so plus. sharks with legs, you know. So, so play Tales of Vesperia. It has sharks with legs. Yeah. <laughs> Definitely, yeah, Excellent. yeah, wholeheartedly agreed. Yeah. All right. So, uh, with that, it just remains for me, Leah, to thank Carl and Mikhail, as well as our correspondents, our editor, Jay, and of course, everybody for listening. Uh, Remember, if you have enjoyed this show and other shows, please consider heading to our Patreon page at patreon.com slash Rinse and donating the minimum of $1 per month so that we can make double the number of Kane and Rinse podcasts in the future. Uh, and next time, in issue 273, it's back to the arcade for some classic robot shooting action with Robotron 2084.